Well, I wish Father, Happy Father's Day to all of the fathers here. I'm one of you. Um, I have five children, so I guess I qualify. And nine grandchildren, so I doubly qualify, I think. So it's a very uh, important day for us as a country that we get to um, honor those who have such a, a vital part. However, I don't know if you know, but um, fathers in America today are, are, not, are not doing very well. Um, we have an epidemic in our country of uh, deadbeat dads. We have uh, an extraordinary number of um, fatherless homes. Thus, uh, studies, there are lots of studies that come out, and they say fathers aren't very important, if you can believe that. Here's uh, from a book entitled, Do Fathers Matter? Our failure to acknowledge fathers' importance is now reflected in the shape of the American family. Fathers are disappearing. Anti-father sentiments are commonplace. Rayburn, who wrote this book, Do Fathers Matter, points to a legal no uh, newsletter in 2012 devoted to the case against um, joint custody. It links to a website about the, quote, the myths and the facts of fatherhood. And the first myth is, and I quote, a father's involvement is crucial for the well-being of a child. That's the number one myth. A father's involvement is crucial for the well-being of a child. They say that's an absolute myth. It's not true at all. It's a dominant. That's a dominant idea in our culture today. Fathers are ridiculed with impunity in almost every single medium. Books. Have you ever noticed books? Children's books. Berenstein Bears. You name it. Fathers are always buffoons. Check it out. Fathers, check, check out TV programs. Fathers are buffoons. It's, it's, it's quite okay to make a father a buffoon. Other people, you cannot quite do that with. Check out movies, magazines. Check out our jokes. Here's one. The story is told of a child that asked her father to make some animal sounds. First, she asked him to make the sound of a cow, and then of a dog, and then of a cat. Finally, she asked him to croak like a frog. When he did so, her face lit up and she said, Mommy said we could go to Disneyland when Daddy croaks. <laughs> At a penitentiary some time ago, Hallmark Cards agreed to come in and distribute free cards in conjunction with Mother's Day. So they asked all of the inmates who were interested to come at a certain time to write on a card and put it in an envelope, and then Hallmark both provided the cards and they mailed them. To their amazement, the line was so long that they got caught short and didn't have an, enough cards for all the men who were interested in sending a Mother's Day card to their mothers. They thought it was so successful that Hallmark cards decided to repeat it on Father's Day. They put out the word that Hallmark would provide free cards for Father's Day. And when they arrived with an ample amount this time, not one person showed up. Not even one. There wasn't a single inmate in this penitentiary who wanted to send a card to his father. 
You think that's bad? It's a whole lot worse. You have on your laps or in your iPad or telephone a Bible. When you go through this incredible book, The Revelation of God to Us, one of the things you'll be very hard-pressed to find is a good father. Well, there are many good mothers. There's a host of good mothers. But throughout the entire Bible, you find hardly any good fathers. They're just not there. So today I'm going to introduce you to a father. This one is most certainly the best father in the whole Bible. He's light years better than any father that's ever existed, and that's the Heavenly Father, who I will call the Prodigal Father. I steal this from Timothy Keller. He wrote a book entitled The Prodigal God. The word prodigal does not mean wayward. Actually, it does mean wayward, but that's not its only meaning. But according to Merriam-Webster's Collegiate Dictionary, prodigal means recklessly spendthrift. It means to spend until you have nothing left. Now, if that is the, uh, the definition of prodigal or one of them, it also means giving something on a lavish scale. I would like to introduce you today to the prodigal father. For there is one who, who is more prodigal, more lavish in his love than any who has ever existed. And so today, I'd like to bring you to what is known as the, the, the greatest story ever told, Luke chapter 15. So would you turn there with me in your Bibles, if you have one? And let me read this, the greatest story ever told. This is considered, by the way, in all of human history, I don't know what we number now, something like 14 billion people who have touched down on this planet. This is the greatest story that any human being has ever told. It's matchless. It's so deep, you can't plumb the depths of it. And it was told by our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property among them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth with wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I, I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned in your sight. Uh, if you can't get this, I'll, I'll try to finish. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. Stop you here to put this little phrase up here, the sting in the tail. That's actually the title of a book on the parables. Parables are a unique form constantly used by Jesus. They're used by Jesus because they have a unique power to communicate. But the genius of a parable is that somewhere in the tale, T-A-L-E, as you can see there, there's a sting. Interestingly, the sting in every parable is cultural. 
And unfortunately, cultural things do not translate from one language to another, typically, from one culture to another. One of the greatest difficulties with interpreting a parable is Americans don't get the sting in the tail. And when you don't get the sting in the tail, you don't understand the parable. I was, I've told you a few times, I was a teacher in Africa back in the 1970s. From time to time, I would, uh, it was a mission school, though I was employed by the Swazi government. I taught history and biology to high school juniors and seniors. And then I would sometimes speak in chapel. There was a, a day that I was speaking in chapel on this parable. I did what I just did with you. I read it until I came to the next line and people started to scream. Africans get the sting in the tail. Americans do not. I have read this parable, I'm sure, a hundred times to audiences in America. I have never had anyone scream. When you go to Africa, they will always scream because there's something in the parable that's so out of, out of character that it's absolutely impossible that it would ever happen, and it's the next line. This is the sting in the tail. While he was still a long way off, the father saw him and was filled with compassion, and he ran to his son. That's the sting. You see, in African society, a father doesn't run. You never run. Women run. Children run. Fathers never run. And to run to a child who has disgraced your name? There is no way in the history of the universe any father would ever run. They scream, no! Fathers cannot run. You can't do that. But here Jesus told the parable, and in his society, like African society, they'll get it immediately. And they say, impossible. You can't do it. Here's the sting in the tail. The father ran to his son. He threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. Back here. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. But bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. And he, so he called to one of the servants and he asked him what was going on. Oh, your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look! All these years, I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you're always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found. There's the greatest story that any human being has ever told. And now let's see what it means to us.
The first thing we must do when you come to a parable is you must consider the context. In this parable, Jesus tells us why he told the story. And here's why he told it. This is verse 1 through 3. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Now, by the way, the word parable, is it singular or plural? He told them these parables. It doesn't say that. He told them this parable. Now, what's going to follow is Jesus is going to, first of all, tell the, and I put it in quotes, the parable of the lost sheep. Um, a shepherd had a flock of sheep. One of them wandered off. He went and looked for that sheep, found the sheep, came back with it, and they threw a party and celebrated. That's followed by the parable of the lost coin. Someone lost a coin in their home. They searched intently for the coin. They found the coin. They called people together, and they had a party. They rejoiced. And then the parable of the lost son. A son is lost and comes to his senses and comes back home. And the father wants to throw a party. But his elder brother does not. You see, when Jesus said this, he said, and Jesus told them this parable, single, singular. So actually all three of these are one parable in three parts. Part number one is the lost sheep. Part number two is the lost coin. Part number three is the lost son. There's a, peril, a, per, a very clear uh, process. Lost, found, rejoice. Lost, found, rejoice. Lost, found, angry. What Jesus is trying to say, among other things, is that in truth... You, to whom he's speaking, and we'll come to that a little later, you care more about animals and money than about human beings. Which happens to be true. But what we want to do today is we want to look at what we can learn about fathering. Because um, in this parable, it's really a parable about God and about us. And it places God as a father. Now, the first thing we're going to learn from this parable is that all God's children are rebels. And so are ours. <laughs> yeah, oh, I heard that. <laughs> now, when you first became a parent, uh, what were your, uh, before you became, uh, when you got pregnant, uh, what were your expectations? Oh. I am going to have the world's first perfect child. <laughs> oh, they will love me. Obey me. Trust me. Respect me. Implicitly. <laughs> and then they come. <laughs> Here's how the parable begins. There was a man who had two sons. Now we know from the parable who the man is. The man is God the Father. And we know who the two sons are. They are us. 
From the context, the Bible tells us explicitly who these two sons are. There's a younger son. We find him in verses 12 to 21. And he is, he represents the tax collectors and sinners. That's what Jesus told us. And then the second son is the older one. And he, he represents the Pharisees and the teachers in the law. Now these are the father and his two sons. And both of his sons are rebellious, but in very different ways. Because the truth is, all God's children are rebels. Some years ago, I was um, reading through the Bible and I got bored. I should never say that as a pastor because I don't really get bored when I read the Bible. Maybe I was tired. I was in the book of First and Second Chronicles. You've been reading that lately? And uh, the Chronicles are fascinating book, books of the Bible because they tell the, the story of the kings of Judah and they tell them from the perspective of the priests. The, the book of First and Second Kings tells it from the perspective of the historian. First and Second Chronicles tells the same stuff from the perspective of the priests. What's interesting about the Chronicles is you can easily determine God's evaluation of each of the kings, and guess what you have? You have 20 generations of fathers and sons, every single one related to the other. So since I was bored, I decided to make a chart. I wrote down every father and every son, and I wrote down next to their name, God's evaluation of them. And here are my results. I know that's going to... Be sure you write this down real fast if you get a chance. Um, there are 21 of them, and here they are. It begins with David. David, the Bible said, had a whole heart for God. doesn't mean David was faultless. As you know, he had major faults. But the Bible says repeatedly, David's heart was whole for God. Now, he had a son, Solomon. Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived, did some really, really dumb things. In fact, I once preached a message entitled, There's No Fool Like an Old Fool, based on Solomon. But his heart was not wholehearted for God. We know that clearly from the Holy Scriptures. He was half-hearted toward God. And then he had a son, Rehoboam. Rehoboam had no heart for God whatsoever. And so what I did is I took all 21 of these and just put next to their name their, um, what they were like. And I hated my results. In fact, I've never preached on this except to you people because I was afraid of what would happen if I did. <laughs> if you look at that, you'll, I, I then put it into a chart. This is what you'll find. Never in the history of Judah does a godly father ever have a godly son. Never. Never in the history of Judah in 21 generations does a half-godly father ever have a son more than half-godly. And every godly son comes from an ungodly father. I didn't, I didn't write that. I just found it. Now, don't derive anything from this, because you know, you're going to go home today and say, okay, the message the pastor spoke this morning is to be as ungodly as you can, because then as a result, you'll have godly children. <laughs> no, that is the exact opposite. But I think what you do see from this is God has no grandchildren. Every human being is an independent moral agent. And you cannot 
guarantee what they will be like spiritually. You can't. You see, God is the perfect parent. He has never done anything wrong, ever, except maybe give us free will. And yet every one of his children is a rebel. One thing is certain. Our children are free moral agents, born with rebellious hearts. And even the best of parents cannot control the outcome. How do I know that? From God and from His Word. But the, 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 the rebellious human heart comes in two basic models. But we usually do not see both models. We only see one. Let's see what the Bible says. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. Now, uh, there's a man named Kenneth Bailey who has lived in the Middle East for many, many years among the Bedouins there, the desert dwellers. And he studied Bedouin literature, and he said this, in all of Middle Eastern literature, there is no case, and their literature goes really far back, there's never been one case of any son, older or younger, asking for his inheritance from a father who is still in good health. What Jesus wrote in this parable that has never once been written anywhere else in all of ancient literature so it's pretty shocking. What is the son saying to his dad? When do you get your inheritance? Exactly. I wish you were dead, dad. That's what he's saying. It's crystal clear. He says, dad, I really don't like you. I really want you out of my life so I can do what I want. But, Dad, I want your money. You, let, let's make a deal, Dad. You give me your money and you get out of my life. Now, what would you do if that, your child did that to you? Well, you ask that question of anyone in the history of the world. Every father that's ever lived says the same thing. Are you kidding? You discipline that child right there. What does the father do? He gives it to them. It's okay. Here it is. And by the way, they didn't keep their money in a bank or in IRAs. Their money was in property. Their, their father then had to sell his property to give part of the estate, one-third of it, because two-thirds would go to the older son. He had to give a third of the estate to his son. So what does the son do? So the son, not long after that, the father made a quick sale, maybe a short sale. The younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. And if you have a lot of money, of course you have a lot of friends. Oh, but you know what happened. Now, um, there was another son. And... Uh, this son did not leave. He stayed at home. But remember what happened when the younger son came home 
the father asked for the older son to come and join the party because in that culture, the older son was to be the MC of the party as required. But here's how he responded. The older brother became angry and father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. You never gave me a goat so I could celebrate with my friends, but when the son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, come home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Now, this older son, he, he isn't very good either. Have you noticed? I, there are two, these two sons are polar opposites, and that's, of course, by design. That's why Jesus told the parable. The younger boy was spoiled. You know, like we think of younger kids are usually spoiled. The older one, responsible. The younger one is into immediate gratification. The older one, no, he defers gratification. The younger son sees his dad as a cream puff. Hey, dad, I wish you're dead. Okay. <laughs> you're a cream puff. But did you see what the older son thinks of his father? Jesus. Did you hear the word? Remember his words? For all these years, I've been slaving for you. So how does he see his father? He's a slave driver. The younger son is overtly disrespectful. Hey, get out of my life and give me the money. The older son is covertly disrespectful. It's under the surface, but it's simmering and stewing under the surface. The, the younger brother, he's a risk taker. The older one, he plays it safe. The, older one, the younger one's a hearty partier. The older brother, hard worker. The younger one is rebellious and irreligious, but the older brother is responsible and religious. One is licentious, one is legalistic. One says, oh, follow your heart, and it leads him into destruction. The other, follow the rules. One's crazy. The other's compliant. Now, um, okay, let's, let's have a show of hands. I would suspect that in this room, all of us fit into one of the... in this room here today. Please raise your hands. Oh, man, you wild, crazy people. How many older brothers? I was the compliant child. I was the one who followed the rules. But it wasn't until I got to be an adult that I started to realize the hidden sins of a compliant person. It's just as dangerous or in Jesus' way, almost more dangerous. Because you see, wild and crazy living doesn't work. It leads to consequences that are extremely painful, and painful consequences hurt, and pain drives you to change. But compliance works really well until you encounter God's grace to someone you think doesn't deserve it. And you get angry inside. You see, people like myself, we, we struggle with all the hidden sins that people cannot see. But they're still there. 
because all God's children are rebels, but they come into basic models. So how does God respond to them? Jesus does not respond to the disrespect of both of his children in kind. You see, one of the greatest difficulties for a parent is not to become like your children. Do this. No. Yes. No, I won't. Yes, you will. No, I won't. Yes, you will. No, yes, no, no. What have you become? You become an idiot. <laughs> Parents become idiots all the time. We get in power struggles with children. And what do they do? The child always wins a power struggle. Parent has never won in history of the world. And they make an absolute fool out of you. Did you notice the father does not respond in kind? And you've, you've heard it said over and over again. Our society knows this to be true. What do children who have been abused, what's their default mode? They abuse. Now, this father is incredibly abused by both of his children. One of his children sees him as a slave driver. The other sees him as a cream puff. One of his children just says, I want you dead, dad, but I want your money. And by the way, have any of you ever treated God that way? There's not one of you who has not, or me. This is basically the way we live our lives as human beings on this planet. God, why don't you let me, why don't you get out of my life a little bit? Let me do what I want, but boy, I, be sure you give me blessings. I want your money, but I don't want your rules. I don't want your, I don't want to be uh, accountable to you, but I sure want the money. And what does God do? He says, okay, I'll do it. I'll give it to you. We, can't, we push him out of our lives and he still gives us his blessings. He does not respond in kind. What does he do when his son asks him, to get out of his life and give him the money, he divides his property and gives it to him. And what does he do with the elder son? It's my son. I mean, if, you, if I was a father, say, how dare you, son? You just called me a slave driver. Put on a happy face, get into this party, and become the MC and make things look good. We'll take care of this later. It's not what he does. It's my son. It's my son. Can you imagine? This is the father. What a father. He never responds to abuse with abu abusing. Now, now, parents in our culture are, are massively, we abuse our children. I mean, our children abuse our, our parents. We do both ways, unfortunately. Children are almost taught in this culture to treat your parents as if they're stupid. You don't seek out their counsel. You seek out the counsel of your peers. You want the money, of course but you don't want them involved in your life. You believe, many, most young people believe that they're smarter, actually smarter than their parents. They hate attempts by parents to limit their freedom, but they want the parents to finance their freedom. That's exactly what God, what we do with God. We're, alt, we're utterly, often utterly ungrateful for their gifts of love and service. And so how does God respond? With kindness. What's his desire? Why does God do what he does? Why do we say, hey, get out of 
my life, but give me the money, does he say, okay. Why would we, we say, we basically put God out of our lives. We say, I pull myself up by my bootstraps, and I make up, and I follow the rules. God says, okay. And we were just seething with anger on the inside. Why? Why does he let us do that? Because he's got a goal in mind. This is God's fatherly desire. He wants his children to learn to trust him. But not because they want to, not because of the rewards, but because they choose to. He wants his children to come to our senses. Now, what is your desire for your children? Fathers? Happy, healthy, and wise. Successful. Some job that makes me look good as a parent. Hey, that's what I want. Is that what you want? Well, that's not what the Heavenly Father wanted. He wanted his children to come to their senses, and his younger son did. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? Here I'm starving to death. He said, My daddy, he treats his servants well. And I'm his son. You see, that father had sowed seeds of unconditional love in his children's souls since they were born. And even though their rebellion took them far away or even close at home, those seeds had been sown and they knew their daddy loved them unconditionally. So I'm going home. I'm going to fess up. And he does so. You perhaps have seen this painting or, or copies of it. It's actually in Russia. It's um, Rembrandt's The Return of the Prodigal. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. You see, both children knew. Did you notice in the parable? Both children knew instinctively that their father was approachable. The younger son knew that when he was super down on his luck, he could still go home to his daddy. And the elder son, when he was seething with anger against his father and his brother, he still knew he could approach his father, and he did. Now, what is your goal for your children? Do you want them to be worldly successful? Or do you want them to be spiritually mature? having a life of gratitude and service. Do you want a child who's simply compliant? Well, some of us do that by, by nature. Or do you look for character? Do you want sinlessness? Good luck finding that one. Or do you want your children to come to their senses? Do you want happiness? That's what our culture searches for. Or holiness? What do you look for? Do you want... Do you want to live your life through your children? Or is your great goal that your you encourage your children to follow the life that God wants for them? Do you want them to be afraid of you? Or do you want them to trust your love? You know, ultimately, I think, what do I want for my children? I don't want their stuff. I want them to trust that I love them. That's all I want. I don't need stuff. As we get older, as you know, we, don't, we need less stuff all the time. Till we get to the grave, we don't get anything to take with us. 
except the eternal souls of people. That's what I want. I want my children to trust that Daddy loves them. And I'd sacrifice everything I have for my children. That's what he's done. That's what he wants us to know. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Filled with compassion for him, he ran to his son. He had to run to his son. He had to get to him first because in that community, the community was responsible to kill this child. The daddy got there first. He protected his son from getting killed. Where? On the outskirts of the city. There's another one who ran to protect his children, shielded us in the arms of the cross on the outside of the city so that he could, he could save us from eternal damnation. The Lord Jesus Christ. That's what this father did. He's absolutely lavish with grace. <laughs> what does he do? The father, as you know, he, 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 he runs to his child and he, he, um, he, he, well, let's see what he does. He waits. He waits for his children. He watches. What's, he, what's the father doing every day as he's out on the brow of the hill looking for his son? He's praying. He maintains a tender heart. He doesn't grow tired of waiting. He initiates the son. He runs to his son. He He runs. He beckons them. He embraces them. He receives them. He forgives them. He rewards them. He celebrates, throws parties. This is the prodigal father and how he responds to his children. Well, what about us? You see, the truth is all God's children are rebels and all of ours are too. And all of... Because of all God's children are, are rebels, that means that there's a sense in which we have a responsibility to nurture our children, but there's a point beyond which we cannot control. God knows that with us, and a parent knows that with each other. So we don't judge one another in ways that are inappropriate. Be careful of that. Don't judge yourself or other people. Human beings come into basic rebellious models. The compliant and the, the wild and crazy. Yeah, there are vari variations in between. Sometimes we shift roles from time to time. But all people are like that in one way or another. But when, God is re when we respond to God with such horrible, uh, sinful hearts, rebellious hearts, He does not respond in kind to us. Nor should we as parents. We must forget, never forget as parents. We're parents. We're not children. We don't go to the level of a child. We stay as parents. God's desire for his children ultimately is that we would come to know and trust him. And that's our goal as parents too, that our children would come to love and trust us. And God is absolutely lavish with his grace. Do you know how the parable ends? Did you notice the genius of this parable? There's no ending. Or is there? It does have an ending. Here's the last verses of the, of the parable of the prodigal son. The father stood 
in the presence of his elder son, tears streaming down his face, his arms wide open to embrace his elder son. But his elder son refused to enter into his father's embrace. And so the father, forlorn with his head bowed, turned, tears streaming down his face, and started to walk back to his home. As soon as he did, his eldest son picked up a hoe and hit his father over the head and killed him. That is the end of the parable. How do I know? Because remember at the beginning, Jesus said, he told this to the Pharisees. What Jesus is doing in this parable is he's holding out his hands. Please, both you compliant ones and you wild and crazy ones, come home. The crazy one came home. The compliant one refused. And instead, they killed their father. Deicide. And thankfully, Though crucified, he didn't remain dead. He rose again. Fathers, though we don't have a lot of examples in the Bible of great fathers, we've got one. He's the absolute perfect father. Let us take our cues from the prodigal father. Let's pray. And may we be like you, Father. It's not our natural bent. You're the perfect Father in every way. We've sung about you today. We've worshipped you today. We've heard about you from your word. And now, may you enable us to leave this place as fathers who have been incredibly gifted with a great responsibility, empowered by you, the Heavenly Father, to serve our children, our spouses, and all we come into contact with like you have treated us pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand. Fathers, here's our words. And mothers, we have one of the greatest and highest privileges in the world. We have the best example of a father the world could ever have. May we take our cues from him. and May we be lavish with the grace he has given to us. God bless you.